Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 109. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I'm really excited to introduce a very special guest, Byron Sanborn. Byron, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I think I got them tightened up. I haven't been upside down in a couple of years, so let's see if I got them tightened up. Oh, gosh, the pressure's <laughs> on now. I've got to keep the rubber on the road. Oh, my goodness. Byron Sanborn has been a BMW Club member for over 41 years after attending their driving school at Seattle International Speedway. After that experience, Byron was hooked on driving at speed. He autocrossed, and then he raced ICSCC and SCCA events, winning champions in 1987 and 1988. And after being invited to drive a friend's Shelby King Cobra in a vintage race, a friendship at the track with another vintage racer was formed when he helped them with their Elva Mark 7. And that friendship led to a career move to vintage racing motors. Byron's been a key part of VRM for over 25 years as a mechanic, a restorer, a manager, and a driver. He's raced over 175 different cars at over 35 different racetracks around the world. And I've known Byron for almost 20 years when I started vintage racing, and I can tell you he's one of the nicest and most knowledgeable vintage race car guys you'll ever meet. So Byron, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a little time and share some more about your history, your business, your career, your interests, and of course, your passion for automobiles? Well, thanks, Mark. Um, I have to admit my my early days of enthusiasm for cars was I just enjoyed driving. And in our family, the rule was we couldn't own a car until after we graduated from high school. So I got the chance to drive my parents' cars up until the time I graduated. And uh, so I got a 69 Chevrolet Suburban or a Volkswagen Beetle were my options early on. (laughs) (laughs) Now there's two extremes. Yes. I learned about brake fade and understeer and all sorts of things, driving back and forth. I was a uh, ski instructor and a uh, ski patrolman back in those days. Oh, wow. And once I finally graduated from high school and I decided it was time to go look for a car, my uncle, who was from out of town, actually lived in Madison, Wisconsin, and he was a BMW guy. And 
We saw a 68 BMW 1600 in the paper for sale, and he encouraged me to go have a look at it. I went and drove it and went, hmm, this is kind of an interesting box. But the best <laughs> part about it was the trunk was big enough to carry my instruments. I'm, uh, I was a musician, uh, still am, and I was sure that I was going to go off to college and become a music major and either teach or perform or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of the trunk big enough to haul my horns was very good. I enjoyed the car, and I could buy it for $1,500, and so I did. Nice. That summer, I was encouraged by my father, who worked for Boeing at the time. There was a brand-new Boeing Employees Auto Sports Club being formed, and I was told I yeah, probably ought to go have a look. And I went, and they, as part of the very first meeting, they threw some cones out in the parking lot and taught us how to autocross. I was hooked. <laughs> immediately <laughs> yeah and so that summer i spent autocrossing and during one of the events this guy with a maroon 2002 drove up next to me he was in a big hurry he was a doctor he was actually an in, an intern at the time and had to get back to uh harborview for a shift and he tossed a flyer in my window as he drove by and it was a bmw club flyer just introducing the club and mm-hmm. I joined up and I've been a member ever since this was in 1973 wow later that summer they held their the first driver's school or it was more of just a driving event at SIR and I went out with an absolutely bone stock 1600 on 165 13 radial tires <laughs> and got hooked on driving around a racetrack and it has just progressed from there. Uh, a year later, the local club, there were a few people in the club that knew about it. The nation, or the International BMW Club, for the first time, offered to have some of the American members come over and do the three-day driver's school at the Nürburgring. Oh, wow. So in July of 1974, at 19 years old, I jumped on an airplane and went to Germany and spent three days driving one of BMW's 2002s around the Nürburgring. We drove from Munich to the to the ring and back. I was head over heels hooked then. I'll bet, yeah. <laughs> and it's just progressed since then. I autocrossed until, actively autocrossed, until uh, about 76, 77, and then started road racing. Uh, a gentleman that I met autocrossing, he raced in a different class and used to get really irritated that this young guy with this stupid beige box kept beating him. <laughs> he owned a specialty tire and wheel shop in Bellevue. He wanted to go racing and decided he wanted to build a car and thought because of his business uh, catering to the BMW crowd might be good. So he decided to race a 2002 BMW and asked me if I was willing to help him put it together and I could drive it. And I went, gee, there's, is there any reason why I should say no to this? And the answer, so that's when the road racing started was, I think our first season was, uh, first summer was 1978. Nice. We, we raced that for a number of years. Then that car got sold, and suddenly I found myself without a race car to drive. So I tried motorcycle road racing. 
I'm a much better car racer than I'm a motorcycle <laughs> racer, and I have the broken collarbone, the repaired broken collarbone to prove it. Oh, yeah. I'll uh, bet your mom was happy you got back on four tires. She was not a motorcycle fan no, at all. No mothers are. <laughs> and the phone call is like, uh, can you come pick me up at the hospital? Oh, goodness. But during this time, I also was uh, going to college. I was a music major, and I was putting myself through school driving ambulance in the King County area. Oh my gosh. At the time I was kind of hoping to become a paramedic, but that didn't work out. There were no fire departments hiring at that time. And so I finished my college degree. I'm actually got a performance degree in music. And as soon as I graduated, I had gotten to know a lot of the people at the local BMW dealership. And after I got out of school and wandered in there one day, they asked whether I was interested in going to work in their, in their service and I wrote service for a little while and then decided I didn't really care for for dealing with directly with the customers that much. Yeah, that's a tough job, those service role jobs. Nobody likes to bring their car in for repair. I, I wound up out in the shop twisting wrenches and, yeah. and did that for quite a while. And in that time, I continued to uh, got back into racing. We we ran the Firehawk Endurance Series in the early SCCA. It started off as, I think, Playboy sponsored it the first year, and then it became Escort. And it's kind of what World Challenge has become mm-hmm. when it first started. The very first SCCA race was at Riverside, and they started, I believe it was 114 cars the beginning of a six-hour race at Riverside. Oh, my gosh. Wow. It was, it was insane. Yeah, sounds insane. <laughs> at the time, the Mustang we were driving was less than six weeks old. We had bought a brand-new Mustang from Bone Scar Ford here in, in Kent, and I drove it from the dealership to the roll bar shop. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and then we went showroom stock endurance racing. Yeah. We did, that, we did that for a while, and then I, we stopped doing that, and I bought a Volkswagen uh, GTI to race in SCCA and showroom stock. In those days, I made that decision based on I really wanted to race on my own. I wanted to race nationally, competitively on a national level. And I sat down and figured out how much money I had to spend and figured out how, what car can I buy that can run at the front of the pack if prepared and driven correctly. Mm-hmm. And a gentleman at a dealership in Bend, Oregon, made me an offer. He said, I'll, I'll sell you a car at cost, and if you'll put my name at the top of the wind, windshield every time you win, place, or show at a national race, I will pay you money. Nice. And if you win a regional or divisional championship, I will pay you money. And if you go to the nationals and do finish in the top six, I will pay you money. <laughs> and I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, That's I did a good very- incentive, isn't it? I, I raced that car for two years. We ran 32 races, and I won, I believe, 28 of them. Wow, fantastic. And ran, the, ran the nationals. But during this time, the vintage car thing kind of started catching on in the mid, mid-'80s. It was really starting to catch on on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Sovereign, the local organization, didn't even exist yet. And a gentleman who lived up the street from my parents knew that I was a car racer, and he came up one day and said, I own a car that I've been working on or working with uh, his brother-in-law, who was down in Los Angeles area. And it was this Cooper Monaco. It was a King Cobra. It was a Shelby King Cobra, which is a Cooper Monaco with a 289 Ford in the back instead of a 2-liter 
Coventry Climax four-cylinder. Mm-hmm. He had no place to park it, no way of moving around, no truck or trailer, nobody to work on it. And he was six feet, 10 inches tall, and he couldn't even <laughs> sit in it. Oh, gosh. He called me, said, if you'll go to L.A. with me and bring the car back, we'll play with it a little bit. If you can work on it and you can haul it around, you get to drive it. Okay, that sounds like a plan to me. I'll do that. So we ran the vintage race around the Tacoma Dome in 85 and then 86. And that's when I met the two people who are my partners now in vintage racing motors. They were at that race running an Elva Mark VII, having trouble. And we were paddocked right next to them, and I poked my nose in, and as I'm wanting to do. Yep. <laughs> and, and we got them on the track. They had a great time. Uh, a year later, they, that was in 85, in 86, I saw them at the same race again. They were having trouble again, and we got them back on the, back on the track. And then that was middle of the summer, so that was like July. And in September, late September, I got a phone call from one of these two gentlemen, and he says, you live in Issaquah, and we're in Issaquah. Would you consider possibly coming and having a look at one of our cars and see if you could help us a little bit? I, at the time, at that time, I was still working at the dealership, and I was working a swing shift uh, four days a week. So during the weekdays, I had time off, and so I started doing a little bit of work for them, and it when I first walked in the garage, I expected to see an Elva Mark Seven, and I walked in the garage, and there was an Elva Mark Seven, and there was a, an AC Bristol, and there was a Lamont Allard, and there was a three thirty two center seat Can Am car, <laughs> and there was an M M one C McLaren Can Am car, and kind of took my breath away, and I yeah. started working on them slowly but surely, and we got them running. And for about three years, I did that part-time. And it just, it more and more and more time. And at one point, I was probably doing 60 hours a week on the vintage cars plus a full-time job at the dealership. And I yeah. said, I can't do this anymore. Sure. The offer was made was, well, then quit your other job and come do this. <laughs> yeah. And that was in 89. Yeah. And then Vintage Racing Motors became a a company in October of 1989. Very cool. Well, it's such a fun story because you kind of ended up back to where you started from in a sense. We're going to talk a little bit more about your time on the racetrack and all the great cars you play with, but what I always like to do here is continue on your journey and start with a success quote. And this is something that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success, and it's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yara. And Byron, you're a driver, so take the wheel. I guess the thing that's probably brought me the best part of my working life has been being ready to take on whatever challenge happens to present itself. Mm -hmm. I have had a number of different jobs in my life, and I have actually applied for three jobs in my entire life. All the rest (laughs) of them were offered to me out of the blue from somewhere, including a job with a company in Hawaii and, and a, a number of other things. So I think the biggest one for me is keep your eyes open, mm-hmm. pay attention to what's going on around you, and be prepared to step in the right direction when an when opportunity presents itself. Well, I've got to imagine in what you're doing, because you're working around all sorts of different vintage cars, so there's 
it's not just one mark, not just one kind of engine. There's all sorts of things going on. I would think that that way of looking at life is absolutely paramount when it comes to what you're dealing with at VRM and all the different vehicles you play with, right? That's correct. I We play with so many things, there are no manuals. You, we got to sit down and figure it out. Yeah. When we when we take them apart, even if it's the car comes in running, if we take it apart, we have to analyze it as it comes apart and go, yes, it was running, but was that assembled correctly? And there's <laughs> no book to go look at. And some of these things, some of the pre-war stuff, you look at it and you go, wow, how yeah. in the world did they come up with that idea? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know. When I first visited your shop at VRM, and it, this has to be 15, 17, 18 years ago, maybe it's 20 years ago, and I first moved up here to the Northwest, and I remember going back, and there was a gentleman rebuilding an engine on an old Bentley, and it was all apart, and I said, wow, how, how long have you been building Bentley engines? And he said, this is the first one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, well, how do you know what you're doing? And he said, oh, I don't really. I'm just kind of learning as I go. So <laughs> that's exactly how it works is it's it's you just you have to understand the basic concept mm-hmm. and be very observant of what's going on. And, and you look at something, and you go, that just doesn't seem right. And maybe it maybe it is. And it's just a different way of thinking. Or maybe the last person who put it together, you know, we're, we're working on stuff that's 60, 70, 80 years old. It's been apart and back together a few times and there's a really good possibility that not every time it was done correctly well especially all race cars that have been crashed over and over again and who knows where the spare parts came from it may have been that guy next to you with the elva (laughs) you know (laughs) exactly and we we look at at some of these old race cars especially some of the stuff that is now considered unbelievably valuable you know you look at a GTO Ferrari or a Testarossa Ferrari or or an old Can-Am car or, you know, a Bugatti or something like that. And at some point, they were just an old, outdated race car. Right, right. You know, they got stuffed in the back corner of a shop or a garage or parked outside or, oh, gee, I blew that motor up. Let's stick a small block Chevrolet in this Tessarosa. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, nowadays that's sacrilegious, but in the 60s, That's it was done did. all the time. Yeah, it's what they did. Well, it's incredible how, how these cars have become major investments for many people. But thank goodness people are still out there playing with them and driving them, and they're still out there for us to enjoy. Could you share a story with us that instigated your passion for cars Share with us that moment, that pivotal moment in your life when you really knew you were a car guy. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to have to say it was the very first time I drove a car. Mm. <laughs> I got it. I'd always, my father was an enthusiastic car owner. He didn't, never had anything very exotic. I mean, the most exotic thing he ever owned was uh, he bought a 66 Mustang convertible, mm-hmm. brand new. But my dad was always, he was always an enthusiast, whether he was driving a pickup truck or a 61 Bel Air or a Volkswagen Beetle. He always made it a point of describing to us how the observations you must make. He was, he was one of these people that, that taught you, as he had in the process of teaching you to drive, taught you to be aware of everything going on around you mm-hmm. and your 
impact on that scene. You're, you're, you're out there with all these people that you can't talk to. You just got to coexist with them. And the first time I got in a car, the light came on. I thought, I've got to do this. And much later in life, probably 15 years ago, uh, mm-hmm. toward, towards the end of my father's life, he admitted to me that the first few times we went out driving, he wasn't sure whether I was ever going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we all have that experience, I think. <laughs> first time I taught my son to drive a stick shift the first day was a big challenge, and he was so frustrated, and I was so frustrated. But you know what? We went back and did it again and again, and his daily driver's a six-speed car now, so, you yep. know, manual. So it's that's the way cool. it should be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, Byron, what I'd love to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and crawl under the hood and get our hands a little dirty, something you do every day playing with old cars. So this should be easy for you. But I'd love for you to share a challenge or even a great failure that you've faced in your career. But most importantly, share with us how you overcame that situation and what you learned from it. I guess the the biggest thing for me was early on when I first got approached to start working on vintage race cars. I was a car enthusiast, but I didn't know anything about them. I, was, I wasn't an old car enthusiast. You could have driven a GTO Ferrari under my nose, and I would have gone, hmm, interesting old red car. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I was kind of in, in my moment and didn't understand what had gone on in front of me. So I think the biggest challenge for me early on was understanding where the industry was going to take me and I was going to have to learn. There were all sorts of skills that I didn't have. I was a wrench twister. Mm-hmm. I was not a welder. I was not a machinist. I was not an engineer. I didn't understand structural integrities or even the basis of how often do you have to take a car apart and crack test things. And depending. So for me, my, my biggest challenge was early on and because I was alone in the shop, I kind of had to self-teach. Sure. It was, it was on-the-job training. And the best thing that happened for me was as we would go to the races and I would meet people. And I would meet people like Louie from JNL or Mike DePuja from a uh, shop in, uh, in Denver at the time. Or Phil Riley down in California. And these were just people I got to know. And... In the process of learning, I got to know people, and I quickly discovered it's our business. It's not as much how much do you know. It's how thick is your Rolodex. (laughs) Yes. You may not be an an expert on a board ward, but if you can find the one guy somewhere in the world who is the absolute expert on board wards, and he knows where every used piece is and has got drawings for everything if you can access that person suddenly you can become a board board expert fairly quickly yeah and so for me that was the trick is the very first bare bones restoration i ever did was a a lamar body j2x allard mm. with a with a hemi in it Nice. And the idea was to get it done just in time for the year of Allard at Monterey. I had no idea about Allards. And I suddenly spent a lot of time on the phone talking to people who understood Allards. Yeah. That, was, that was my big thing because I'm not usually one who asks for help very much. I changed that about 
25 years ago. Oh. I, learned, I learned to ask for help. Well, that's a great thing to do. And, you know, I can see now where that success quote comes into play here. It's just take whatever's coming at you next. And, uh, yeah, surrounding yourself with the right people and reaching out for help. It's so important. So I love that. That's great. I appreciate you sharing that with us. How about shifting gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum and share a story when you had a real aha moment about your career, a time when you realized, you know what, I think this is going to be pretty cool. It's going to work out. And tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into your success. Wow. I I totally lucked into this particular job. For the first three years, I was working for one person. And I was just doing stuff for him. And then one of his friends brought a car. He goes, I can't. I've got a friend. Would you have a look at his Cobra for him? And then suddenly it was oh, let's make a business out of this. Yeah. And I was horrified. I, was, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I didn't sign on to be in a business. I, yeah. I just wanted to tweak race cars. And I kind of, it took me about five years of the full-time part to kind of get to the point where I, I felt comfortable taking on pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. At that point, I went, okay, this, this could be my job for the rest of my life. I, <laughs> I love cars. Yeah. I love the people I'm working with. I love that I get to travel around. I love that I get to drive them occasionally. Oh, yeah. And so this is about as good as it gets. That's pretty <laughs> aha. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. You may have had a five-year <laughs> aha moment, but that's absolutely great. How about proudest moments? Is there a, a moment in time you can think that was one of your proudest moments in your career? I don't think I've got a single point that just sticks in my mind as being my my proudest moment. Every time I go to a racetrack with a trailer full of cars and our customers have a great weekend and we push them all back into the trailer and, and go on to the next racetrack, it's as good as it gets for me. And there's no one particular moment that just that just stands out above all and all of them. There are certain which were more fun. Sure. In 19, I think it was 99, we uh, were asked to bring a number of BRM, old BRM Formula One cars to Silverstone for the 50th anniversary of BRM. Nice. <laughs> and we had three models that nobody else in the world had running versions of. So we, we shipped them over and, and at some point during the conversation, I just assumed we were going to stick them, stick them on a, on a, in a container, send them over, and somebody at the other end would, would put them out and people would look at them. And then I discovered that uh, Richard Atwood was going to drive one of them and Sterling Moss was going to drive one of them. Oh, wow. And I was expected to go along and make sure they kept running. <laughs> and, and so... I get to travel the world doing this. How, yeah. cool is, how cool is that? And then once I got there, I discovered that there was a Type 63 uh, birdcage Maserati oh, wow. there, which was one of the 12-cylinder cars. I think it was actually the car that Augie Pabst and uh, it was a Cunningham car. They, ran, they were running at Le Mans. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, it said, well, if you keep the BRMs running, you can drive the birdcage at Silverstone. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. It's like life is tough. Yes, fantastic. Well, <laughs> let's have a little more fun here. What was your first really special car? And could you share maybe a memory you had with that vehicle? 
Ooh, I've got a 1970 BMW. Uh, it was originally a 1600 that I purchased in December of 74 as a used car. And that was my that was my learning bed. I took it to the racetrack and I played with it at driver schools and I learned to go fast in that car. I remember the day I broke two minutes around SIR in that car on little skinny tires and no sway bar and a one barrel carburetor and wow. you know eighty yeah. eighty five horsepower and all the rest of that stuff. And then I I got to actively autocrossing and it was like, okay, I need more horsepower. How do I build that? And I need more handling. So what do I do? Spring, you know, modify suspensions. And then, okay, I'm going to run on slick tires. And, and for 15 years, that car was my race car. It was my daily driver. It got me back and forth to college. And I still own that car. And the last time I took it to the track and put a stopwatch on it, that car that I turned two minutes a lap in in 1974, I was turning minute and 38 second laps oh my gosh it's not very stock anymore yeah yeah and i often think why do i keep it 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 doesn't get driven very much anymore and i can't part with it it's 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 part of me part of you yeah oh fantastic (laughs) (laughs) i love it i've seen that car that is a very cool car (laughs) so i can see why you, you keep that in the garage how about seller's remorse is there a vehicle that you've let go that you really wish you could have back oh definitely and uh in 1975, I purchased a uh, 1970 Boss 302 from, from the second owner, and I held on to that car for about three years. And so while I was going to school and money was getting a little tight, and the, the value of Boss Mustangs had gone up dramatically, so that $3,000 Boss 302 I sold for $6,500, and I thought I'd cut a fat hog on that one. Sure. Well, at the time, you did. <laughs> I, I did. It's changed you, a little bit now. Yeah, it's only gone up by, yeah. what, what, 1,000%? Oh, I know. Well, let's not talk about cars we wish. I know. I always hate bringing up that question. It's pro- <laughs> I should probably eliminate that from these discussions. But uh, at any rate, it's just so everyone else feels good. Okay, I did it too. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely. <laughs> <laughs> How about current projects? I know uh, not too long ago, you restored a beautiful 2002 Turbo. That was fantastic. But is, is there a car you're working on right now? Or maybe it's a car in the shop that really has you excited and fired up. Yes. One of our customers went looking for a new car. And we found a old Group 2 uh, BMW CSL in England. Oh, wow. And that has not run in 25 years. It's the old original Schnitzer car. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of my major project right now. It uh, it's painted and sitting there waiting to be assembled. The engine's done, but it hasn't been dynoed yet. I've, I have a lot of work to do. But being an old BMW guy, yeah, that's that's pretty high up on my list of things to do. We also have another customer that's got uh, one of the X Factory Group Five CSLs that unfortunately was damaged in an accident at Monterey a year ago, and we're having to do some major work on that and. In the process of this, we're going to put it back to its colors that it ran in, uh, in Le Mans in 1976. So oh, I'm nice. I'm up to my eyeballs in E9 coupes yeah. right now, and I'm just I'm in hog heaven. You're a happy guy. <laughs> I yeah, can tell. very much so. <laughs> now here's a fun question for you: If you were a car, what kind of car would Byron be, and why? Ooh, ooh, yeah. Uh, I know. 
I know what I'd like to be. No, it's it's I, what would you be? <laughs> I would probably I would probably be I would probably be some sort of a tow vehicle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would I would probably be uh, uh, you know a uh, maybe one of those uh, a service truck you know single race car with all the tools everything in the truck ready to go someplace. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's probably me more than anything else. Great answer. Very honest answer. I like that. All right, Byron, we're up to the last lap and this is where I fire off a series of questions and you give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready to go? Okay. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Ooh, probably the best one probably has to go all the way back to my father it was pay attention to everything. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to everything. Oh, that's a, that, that's probably the best. I like it. That's a great one. It kind of reminds me of the Mies van der Rohe, God is in the details. Exactly. Very <laughs> pay much. attention to everything. I like that. Could you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? I'm a detailed person. I stand and look at things and try to imagine how it how it's going to look when it's done, and how do I get there? So I, I tend not to just dive in and do things. I tend to spend a few minutes at least trying to analyze before I jump in, and then the wrenches fly and the parts start going everywhere. Very important with the very <laughs> unique cars that you guys are working on there. <laughs> I like that. How about books? Is there a book that you've read in the past that you'd like to share with our listeners that you really enjoyed? I think it's more an author than a, than a single book because oh, he's, he, okay. he's done a number of things. A gentleman by the name of Janusz Wimpfen his, wrote his first major book was this massive work called Time and Two Seats. And it was a oh, his, yes. history of endurance racing. And it's two volumes and each one's about three inches thick. And it is literally a race by race account of endurance racing, and he researched it down to the drivers and the chassis numbers and the story. You know, if you want to know what Le Mans was in 1956, you you open to that page, and and the ne- very next page might be the six-hour race at Monza, which was the next race that year. It is the most phenomenal work I have ever seen in my life, and he's gone. He's gone on to add to that. He's written about the Can Am series and. Uh, I can't even begin to to remember all of the various books, but his scholarship is just unbelievable. I remember when that book first came out, the volumes of those books first came out, and I have those. And the number of the information that's in there is just incredible. So that's an awesome, awesome resource. And I'll remind our listeners that you can find links to all these resources at carsyeah.com slash Byron Sanborn. Okay, Byron, you're a racer and we're up to the checkered flags. You know what that means. Pedal to the metal. The end is almost near. And this last question can be a real doozy for some people. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, but money's no object, today I'm going to buy you whatever you want. Christmas is coming a little early. What would that vehicle be and why? A dark blue McLaren F1. And I mean the street car F1, not a Formula One car. So the first generation McLaren F1? Yep. Yes. Yep. Uh, yes. What is yeah. it about that car that, that tugs on your heart? Uh, it is an absolute pristine driver's car. There's nothing on that car that's there for anything other than 
making it the best driver's car that Gordon Murray could design at the time. It's lightweight. It doesn't have power steering. It doesn't have power brakes. It doesn't have ABS. It doesn't have... It has no whistles and bells. There's no... There's no onboard computer. There's no nav. There's no nothing. It's got a manual transmission, a normally aspirated V12, and it weighs nothing. And it is the most phenomenal piece of workmanship I have ever seen in my life. And I'd take one of those over a GTO Ferrari in a, in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, that's saying something. <laughs> have you ever had the pleasure of driving one? I have not, unfortunately. Well, we'll add that to your list. I'm sure one day I, you'll get in one of those. I, I'm, I'm hoping I can find somebody that'll, that'll at least give me a ride in one someday. So any of you Cars Yeah listeners out there, I've got a talented guy that can drive your car without hitting anything. You just need to give Byron a call and tell him you've got a McLaren F1. He'll be right at your doorstep. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll be there in a heartbeat. <laughs> awesome. Well, Byron, you've taken us on a great ride today, and I've really enjoyed your stories. It's been great to catch up with you, and I've learned a few things about you that I didn't know either. Could you give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that McLaren F1? I've spent a, a number of years, you know, since, since my early days of, of driver school with the BMW Club, I started instructing uh, in about 1976, 1977, and I've instructed professionally and, and and just club days and stuff. My signature phrase is, it's really easy to drive a fast car slow. It's <laughs> way more difficult to drive a slow car fast. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. If you're going to learn, start off in a Bug Eye Sprite or a, BMW, a 2002 BMW or an MGB or an Alpha. Don't just jump right straight into that Corvette because you'll learn things in that Sprite that will go that will help you for the rest of your driving career. And it's phenomenal. You know, the, the, you know, again, I learned back in the days, when, you know, I had 85 horsepower and 165, 13 radial tires is how I learned to drive. And I, had, I didn't know what an R compound tire was until after I'd been driving for 10 years. So. Yeah, probably <laughs> saved you many times. I would agree. That is great advice. When I started vintage racing, it was in a Lotus 18 Formula Junior. Not a very fast car. Perfect car to learn. Perfect that. car. Slides around, but you can really learn car control. So that's a great piece of advice for our Cars Yeah listeners. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about what you're doing there at VRM? We finally got ourselves a website in the last few months. <laughs> great. Uh, we've joked for years that there's two kinds of people in the world. There's, there's techno weenies and retro grouches. We've, <laughs> we've been on the retro grouch side for so long, but it's now uh, www.vrmotors.com. Okay. Yep. I think uh, you're right. Yep. Absolutely. I'll post that up on Byron's show notes page, and you can find that at carsyad.com slash Byron Sanborn. I want to thank you, Byron, for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with our listeners. I had a great time driving around the track with you here this evening. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thanks a lot, Mark. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!